group counseling sessions, one-on-one -on -one counseling sessions, suicide assessments, uh, crisis response when there's an incident. So we work in tandem with the school psychologists a lot. A lot. We're implementing um, Section 504 plans, which I know a lot of you probably won't know what it is, but it's an educational plan where you're providing support services for students who are struggling in their courses, so having a, accommodations or access to different tools and equipment that would enhance their learning or make it fair for them to have the, the same opportunity as someone who can succeed generally in a general education class. Um, so it's a lot more mental health oriented and uh, social emotional well-being now from when it first originated. And I know a lot of people never realize that their counselor could do that or provide those services. Um, they usually just see them in, in one dimension as an academic advisor. Like I just meet to choose my classes or enroll in this course and change my schedule. Um, so part of the fall, right, it does fall on some of the school counselors who aren't advocating for the role and making it more aware of what exactly they do um, as opposed to just going by and just doing scheduling and stuff like that. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, thanks for that. And um, so I, I guess like for clarity, right? Um, the big, like, what is it? What did you say? Like the big three um, roles? Domains. Yeah. Domains. So we have college and career readiness. We have academics. And then the last one is social emotional well-being. Oh, thank you so much for that. And, and um would and I guess like this might be different for each school right and I'm asking for the people who you know like had different experiences um like I've never my counselor never asked me about my socio-emotional health um they were more for um the academic advising part and college and career readiness um is there a certain place that we would like is that are you different from that person who schedules our classes so in my district, we do both. So we'll, we'll meet with you, we schedule your courses, help you register for next year. Uh, but we also have to do guidance lessons plans where we go into the classroom and talk about like recognizing stress or managing stress or like these different workshops related to social emotional well-being. And I think that kind of is an opportunity for us to let them know like, hey, like, yes, we can help you with your academics and your schooling. But remember, like, we're here to support you in this capacity. and. Um, I don't think most districts recognize that and I know there's still a lot of work where like even administrators and teachers don't know what the role of a school counselor is or they misunderstand it. Um, so what we've done in my district, at least at my school site, is at staff meetings, we'll do a quick like overview of what our, our counseling team does, what we provide so that way teachers are aware like, oh my god, this student is expressing like suicidal thoughts or they're having a hard time or I'm noticing a change of behavior that, that they know that they can use us as a resource and refer the students uh, to us so that way we can work with them and see what's going on. That's so awesome. Thank you for clarifying that for me and for everyone else. Um, so, and then I, this is just popped up out of nowhere. Um, do you consider yourself an educator in that counselor role? I do, and what we discuss our, uh, I guess we are known as school-based mental health professionals along with the school psychologists, um, or school social workers. So I still consider ourselves part of the education team. We talk about academics. We have to understand how education is important, how the different structures that are placed in schools to benefit others versus, uh, you know, a dominant group and whatnot. And especially because a lot of the times we're the ones who are helping students 
choose your features, right? Like where do I want to go after high school or what classes do I want to take? To some extent, a lot of us unfortunately act as gatekeepers and allowing them access to certain courses and knowledge. Um, so definitely still see ourselves as educators because we're working in the schools and we're still doing work related to education on top of uh, mental health. Thank you so much. Um, and then you mentioned another thing and this is like another clarifying question. And you mentioned um, you, your role is different from that of a school psychologist. Um, yes. So, yeah, so a school psychologist is there to work uh, primarily only for special education students, right? They're hired because special education laws require that a school psychologist is present. Uh, whereas a school counselor works more broadly with the general population. So we'll work with all of our students, including special education students, right? But what we do with them will look different than what a school psychologist is doing. Uh, so we're working with all of our 9 through 12 students, whether you're in special ed or not, whether you're ELD, whether you're AP and honors, we're helping them select courses. We're helping them apply to college, financial aid. So we see the different aspects of the domains that are being implemented, whereas the school psychologist is there uh, just to work with the special education students, right? They'll do assessments for special education. They'll create their individualized education plans, also known as an IEP. Um, and they will, when need to or asked upon, engage with the general education population. Uh, but more often than not, in my experience, they tend to just be there with special education. And that alone is a lot for them because they have a handful of students and then they have to provide more one-on-one -on -one and individualized attention to them, whereas the school counselors we do have a lot of students in our caseload, uh, but we usually have like four or five of us at a school versus just one school psychologist at a school site. Oh, wow. Thanks. Thanks for that. And I guess like um, you brought up something that, you know, um, was I was going to ask you next then. Uh, you mentioned IEPs, which are individualized education plans. Mm -hmm. and this is just to like make sure I understand too, right? IEPs. Um, and that is done and I think this is based on the Klingner and Harry um, article that's done um, like mainly by the school psychologist, but in conjunction with a team that the student, like the teacher, the school counselor, the parent, right? I guess yeah. I to ask you about that now. Can you tell us more about an IEP and then, um, and then how that fits into like the referral process? Um, and then our main topic about like ability. Yeah, so an IEP, is an individualized education plan. So only students who are receiving special education services or who qualify for special education services um, would have access to an IEP. So I do want to mention, earlier I talked about a Section 504 plan. That's something what a school counselor would do versus a school psychologist. They do an IEP, an individualized education plan, but the process mirrors each other. So when we're looking about that article, about the process that it takes for the referral and being evaluated, the two mirror each other. But real quickly before I move forward, uh, an IEP, right? So we're talking about a student with special education services. Um, they need modification of the curriculum. So in other words, they can't, they're deemed as not being able to succeed in a general education class with the way that the curriculum is presented through the general masses, right? They need it to be cut down or go at a slower pace or modified in some way or another, which is why we call them individualized education plans because what it's gonna look like for one student is not necessarily going to mirror that of another. Um, so generally, that's why we have smaller education, special education classes so the teachers can dedicate more one-on-one -on -one time with the students based on their needs. Whereas a Section 504 plan, that's something that a school psychologist would typically do at the secondary level 
Um, and these are just doing an assessment of the student. Yes, it can have an impairment or a disability like autism or something like that. Uh, but it's not necessarily impacting them to the degree where they need to have their curriculum modified. So would they just need accommodations, right? Perhaps they need handwritten notes or perhaps they need to be able to record lectures or that they get, you know, 50% extra time on testing and homework assignments and stuff like that. So we're not changing the curriculum. We're just providing additional support services. And that's what a 504 plan does, right? We're helping them be successful in a general education course versus an IEP, which is completely modifying the curriculum and the instruction, which is why now they're in a special education course. And I'm, I hope that makes sense. And let me know if it doesn't. Uh, but yeah, those are mainly the two differences between those two. Did that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I think okay. so. Um, um, so but, then, yeah, I, go for it. Go for it. Okay, so I was just gonna talk about the referral process, right? So in the article uh, that, if, if you read that article, um, it talks about the special education referral process, and again, it mirrors that of the 504 plan, which a school psychologist, which a school counselor would do, and the school psychologist would do the IEP. So essentially, you have a couple of different ways that you can get a referral, right? You can have a parent who's concerned and refers the student for an evaluation, whether for a 504 or for an IEP at the school site. Um, it could be identified that a teacher's noticing, like, a lack of competency or they're struggling or they're not being able to understand the material at the same pace as everyone else. So they might send someone to be evaluated or it could be what we call a child find where I might be working with the student or the school psychologist might be working with the student and then we look at their records and we've seen their low grades and in conversation with them and with their parents we discover you know what I think there's something that's not quite working for the student in this class, we need to see if there's something else going on that we can do to support or address. So that's what we call child find because you're the one who identified the student. Um, so those are mainly the three ways, right? So at one point, if those one of those three happens, then you kickstart the uh, referral process where now you have to do a review of records. So this means that if I have a 10th grader who gets referred to me for a 504 or the school psychologist gets that, we have to do like an intake, we meet with the student, kind of hear their perspective, how are they doing, how are they doing in their classes, do they feel like they're understanding the material, is it hard, what's hard about it, is it just particular classes, because for some students it might just be like English and social science because it's more reading intensive, so that might be a hint that there's like a learning disability with reading or whatnot, um, so we'll gauge to see from the intake like what information we can get, but then you have to look at other data, so we do a review of records, which means that if this is a 10th grader, I need to look at ninth, eighth, seventh, sixth, fifth, fourth, third, all the way to kinder, whatever records we have accessible to us. You're looking at patterns for grades. You're looking at comments that teachers have provided. Um, although standardized test scores, we know that they're problematic, but because they're a source of data, we have to look at them to state tests or district benchmarks to see how have they been doing. Um, and if, if they're uh, continuously like performing long, we're seeing issues and grades are low and teacher concerns on comments or report cards in the past are showing concerns like that. We'll use that data to inform our decision. Um, and then of course you have to meet with the parent, get their perspective, right? Like what is going on at home? What are you observing when you're helping them do their homework? Do you notice any struggles? Has this been a reoccurring pattern? Because uh, sometimes it could just be situational, right? Maybe there's a divorce, maybe someone has died. So we're seeing a huge change right now in the student's behavior, but in the past, they've been doing successfully well and so on and so forth. 
Um, so you do look at a bunch of different sources of data and then eventually you consult with a team. So in the article that talks about like your IEP team, similar to the 504 um, referral process, you don't want to make this decision on your own. So you're pulling from all these different sources of data, but then you're also, you know, getting feedback from the teachers, getting feedback from the parents of the students, and then working in collaboration with an administrator or inviting the school psychologist if you're the school counselor and having a 504 and vice versa. If it's the school psychologist, they might invite me, the school counselor, to provide like feedback on what my involvement have been with the student. Have I noticed anything? Have they ever been to my classes based on the grades or what courses they're taking? And if I'm noticing any patterns of struggles. Um, so then you have a meeting where all these different people are invited and granted not everyone can always make it right. Teachers have to teach in the morning or leave after school, but you try to get at least their feedback via email or to some degree a survey or something. So that way when this whole team meets, you're able to present the different data sources and have a conversation with everyone, right? And then essentially you're the lead for whatever it is, whether it's a 504 or an IEP. And then based on the data, based on the discussion, you'll throw the suggestion and be like, it's my understanding, right? That, well, the school psychologist could do the assessment and be like, they have specific learning disability or they have emotional disturbance or they're suffering from autism spectrum disorder. So that's another key difference where a uh, a school psychologist can diagnose or label them under one of those 13 categories to qualify special education, whereas a school counselor doesn't because we, we have the training to recognize patterns and we might, you know, not predict, but suggest that they might be having X, Y, and Z, but we can't name it that because we're not clear through our credential to diagnose, right? Whereas a school psychologist can. So in this IEP meeting, they'll, they need to have one of those 13 diagnoses and Again, it's like autism, uh, specific learning disability, emotional disturbance. Um, there's a handful of other ones that I'm like blinking out, traumatic brain injuries, stuff like that. Um, and the school psychologist would then identify the student as qualifying under one of those 13 categories. Um, and then you'll have a discussion. Does the team agree? They do. And then because you're seen as the expert in your field, right, whether you're the school psychologist or the school counselors, then you start uh, discussing accommodations or modifications, right? Perhaps they need this to be done, perhaps they need that to be done, and then you'll ask the team as to consult, Are they? do they agree, do they not, do the parents and the student feel like this is sufficient, or do they feel like uh, they need more, and sometimes they'll be like, oh, that's too much, like I don't think my son or daughter needs that, they just need a little bit of this. Um, so really that meeting is a big team effort where you're trying to draft, what is this gonna look like, what is the IEP gonna look like, what is the services that the school is going to offer or the modification of the curriculum for the student to be able to be successful in that class. Um, and, you know, sometimes you might have to have a follow-up meeting because there's so much to discuss. So you'll start off the meeting there, schedule a follow-up one where you'll finish off discussing uh, more of the modifications and services for the student, and then eventually come to a consensus. And that's the important part because you need the parents and the school staff to be on board. Everyone signs that they agree with it. And then the parents get a copy and then the school has a copy. Once the student is qualified for special education, then all of his teachers have to get a copy of the modifications that and services that the student has access to. Similarly to a 504 plan for a student who qualifies for it, the school counselor would then have to provide all the teachers of that particular student the accommodations that they're entitled to in the event that they want to utilize them just so that all the teachers, everyone who's working with them is aware of what, what's going on. 
And yeah, that's essentially a quick brief overview of what the <laughs> process looks like. I know that was a lot. So if you have follow up. That was really then. detailed. Thank you so much. So that, so again, like that's the referral process. And, and I guess like from my understanding, and I know you've explained this to me so many times, right? Um, and just for clarity, right? Um, so would you say that um, the, this referral process, um, can, is intrinsically linked to the, um, I guess, like the uh, tracking in, in schools, right? Because like you're basing it on mm -hmm. ability and either it's like emotional ability to be in the classroom or intellectual or psychological, yeah, like all those types of abilities um, that would enable a student to function in the classroom. Yeah, it is, right? So the moment we label someone as a special education student, right, which historically has been a lot of students of color, particularly male students of color, who are labeled under this uh, special education category. One of the, the issues about it is too, is that other health impairment, or there's this, there's like this loophole where the, it's not a concrete label, but the school psychologist could be like, oh, it's other learning disability. And that it's subjective, right? We don't have to specify who it is. The school psychologist says deems as a student, the student is not eligible to function in general education classes. Um, so then once you put a student in special education, when we talk about tracking, they no longer have access to the general education courses or the college prep courses, right? Um, they might have access to some in terms of like PE, band, or usually the visual performing arts is something that they're able to do well in and that they have access to. But in terms of like higher level math and English and like advanced electives, uh, they don't have access to that because technically with their IEP, they would need that curriculum modified so they won't be successful in those elective courses or other courses that they might be interested in taking, uh, which is unfortunate. And sometimes we have like electives like auto shop or some other, you know, culinary arts, but before the school counselor can place them, right, we need to have a conversation with the school psychologist, uh, who's overseeing that student and their uh, modifications and services and then with the parents and oftentimes we'll be like oh because of x y and z we can't allow you to be in this class because it'll be too difficult for you or you know if they do i mean sometimes it is legit right like if they have issues with like fine motor skills which is like grasping and walking balancing then obviously there'll be a concern to have a student like that in a auto shop class uh but for other like and sometimes it's hard to explain that to students but yeah going back to the the tracking practices right that label really impacts what you have access to and if you're thinking about college if you're a special education student you're automatically your only option is to go to a vocational or community college and then transfer because none of your courses will count for a through g eligibility thanks for clarifying that and um and yeah, cause like thinking, like for me, like thinking of education as a whole, right? right? And I think uh, we've taken the same classes. So um, uh, counselors and school psychologists and administrators have a direct link on, um, you know, like the tracking, pro uh, the tracking system in which students are often like labeled and placed in. And I guess like um, for the reading, right? Um, they're talking about um, language placement um, I guess I was going to ask, like, um, do you have any experience with this? Or um, can you explain to us how exactly that would work? Because um, they talk about, like, bilingual assessors. And I don't know if I've experienced this as uh, ESL immigrant student. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, can you talk more about yeah. that? Yeah, uh, that's a good talking point. So one of our concerns, right, or at least for me and the colleagues that I've worked with, and fortunately, I feel like I worked with uh, a well-culturally responsive psychologist, but we always have to, like, have these conversations, right, because a, a teacher might be referring a student who, yes, they might be new to the country, but in terms of, like, them understanding the material, they're getting it, maybe there's a language barrier, or, you know, maybe they're getting by with the C, and they're seeing that as a red flag, like, how are you getting a C in this class and whatnot. So we, we do have some students who get referred, at least to my office, um, for a 504, or, or, or what we do at our school is when there's a referral, they come to us first, and then we decide if the school counselor is going to do it because it's more of a 504, or we send a matter of referral to the school psychologist because they do special education evaluation. Um, so we've actually had conversations where uh, this past fall in 2019, um, we had a new student who was referred to me for an evaluation and I consulted with the school psychologist and the, the parent had somehow caught wind of what special education was. Not that it's a bad thing, but I think the teacher like instilled that idea into the parents so then they were concerned and were asking for an evaluation. But the student had only been here for about a month. So there's no specific guidelines like a student must be present in the United States for, you know, 60 days before an evaluation can happen. Like there's no like clear cut answer for it. So what we did was just like, well, we don't want to jump the gun and do an assessment and then misdiagnose or mislabel the student. And then all of a sudden we're, you know, imposing these tracking practices because now you're going to be an ELD class or maybe you're a special education ESL student and stuff like that. So we try to wait um, about a month and a half to see how the student is doing, checking in with them weekly, talking to the teachers, and even a month and a half, some people might argue that it's not like quick enough or not, sorry, not long enough. Um, so we might prolong it if we're seeing that they're not necessarily doing bad, bad. Like if you have a D in your SRCs, like, yeah, most of our students can do that. But I think a lot of people automatically see like, oh, one D and a bunch of Cs emerging bilingual or like immigrant student, like there has to be something wrong. But if it was someone who was already born here and just typically has those grades, there's no red flags being raised. So we have to be cognizant of like our biases and what others are telling us and see if we're buying into it. Um, so that in that particular incident that happened in the fall, the school psychologist and I were like, no, we're gonna wait about two months and see what happens. And, and then even then, like we do have some of the, like the Woodcock Johnson, which is an, a, What's that? Kind of, like kind of like an IQ or like an intelligence test, right? That is typically they'll use on students to gauge like, where are you at? Where's your competence level? Are you, are you now special education? So it's typically something the school psychologist would administrate. There's different forms of these tests called different names, but the one that I'm most commonly known is the Woodcock Johnson. So yes, we do have it in Spanish, but that doesn't tell us anything because, again, going back to assessments or standardized tests, they're biased, right? And then the language that they're using in Spanish is very formal language, which I mean, you know, as a bilingual person, right? I grew up speaking Spanish, but the Spanish I grew up speaking at home was not formal Spanish. It wasn't like Spanish from Spain or like very like top notch and for lack of a better word, like elite Spanish. It was like street Spanish, Mexican Spanish is what some people would call it. Like there's vocabulary words that if if I read the assessment, like even me, like I read the assessment and I'm like, I don't even know, like, would I understand that as a student? 
Um, so there's a lot of biases in that. And that's what also makes us nervous, which is why we we want to wait, right? Like some people are like, oh, but you have it in their language. I'm like, yeah, we have it in their home language, but just having it in, a, in their, and I use home language in quotes because again, yeah, I grew up speaking Spanish. I still speak Spanish, but some of those words are so like formal that if I wasn't from an upper class or a particular country that utilizes Spanish in that way, to me, it, it wouldn't make sense, right? So uh, we try to be careful with, with stuff like that. And, and that's what the article talks about when talking about emerging bilinguals or English language learners, uh, the issues and how they're easily misdiagnosed or labeled as special education, how they're not properly given an assessment, even if it's in their home language, um, and how more often than not, they're not given the benefit of the doubt. They just go through X, Y, and Z and be like, hey, okay, you meet this category, you meet that category, you're a special education. And then all of a sudden we've shifted their future in education because now we're putting them in a program and imposing this label on them uh, that might not might not be accurate. So that's that's the tricky part about these assessments and stuff like that. Yeah, and I guess like while you were talking too, right? Like I I remembered um, like this video by Jamila Lysakot about the different types of Englishes. Um, mm -hmm. and I can even see the things that you, the framework that you're talking about, about like biases in the test and even in English, right? Like for folks who speak African-American vernacular English or for folks who, you know, are just not exposed to like standardized, um, I guess like WASP English. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From like low income areas who don't necessarily speak that way in their homes. Um, so I, lastly, right, because like I've been listening to you for like 30 minutes now and, and I really like it. Um, so my last question is, um, why must we center diversity, um, racism, ableism um, in the counseling practice? Um, uh, because like, you know, um, you mentioned that you, like you're being cognizant of being culturally responsive in in your own district, um, in your own school, but some folks might not be able to, some folks are not able to think that way or mm -hmm. are not culturally responsive. Um, so um, again, the question is like, why should we center diversity, racism, ableism um, in, in your practice as a counselor? And you kind of answered it throughout, but I just want like a succinct. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a very valid, question and I'll start off by saying what you mentioned right like I try to be as cognizant or aware of my biases or what's going on and I think because of the courses and the level of education I have but also my experience as a person of color going through the education uh, pipeline um, I'm able to recognize or understand things in a different way than some of my other peers right and I want to remind you all my education is still predominantly dominated by white females and when I look at my counseling team uh, I'm the only male and out of the five of us, only two are of color and our school psychologist is also white. So when we're looking at the administration, it, it mirrors a similar thing, right? It's, uh, they might not understand the experiences or the stuff that we do. Um, so I always try to have a conversation, right? Again, going back to the school psychologist who I feel like she's for the most part pretty critical and responsive in terms of like checking her biases and understanding stuff. Just having a conversation of that way. I know we've had conversations with my other teammates 
who were surprised at some of the stuff that we had mentioned or had never thought about certain situations or biases in that way, like when we talked about accommodations and who's being sent to us and how we, like I even went to as far as like show them an article that talked about how like students of color are just proportionately placed in special education. And for some of them, they were like surprised. So then we were like, oh, well, let's look at our numbers. And to no surprise, we looked at our numbers and a lot of our students are students of color. And particularly if we're looking at gender, a lot of them were male students. Um, so just starting with little conversations like that, right? The first time around, they're not always gonna understand it. I know some of my colleagues, like, okay, I hear you, I get it, but like they always try to like have a rebuttal for it. So just having the conversations over and over again can help them be critical. And then all of a sudden they'll be consulting with me or the school psychologist, although that can be taxing, right? Because then they see you as like, why do you have to go to the person of color to help you understand this? Like you, I, I've given you some resources, continue the work on your own and whatnot. Uh, but that connects to the importance of being able to take all of these into consideration when we're working as school counselors. Uh, one, the way that we approach conversations with students of color when they're choosing courses, right? If I have an African-American male who's like, I want to take AP English Literature and AP Psychology, am I responding differently verbally or non-verbally as opposed to my white or Asian-American student who might come in and be like, well, I want to take these advanced courses. And I'll be like, yeah. Um, the tone that I'm using when we're meeting senior year and talking about college options, am I, uh, you know, we have to be cognizant about race and gender because then when the students are telling you that they want to apply to this school or to that school, you know, are you providing them that information or are you just assuming like, okay, you're, you're going to go to a Cal State, so we're going to skip the whole conversation about the UUCs and the private schools. Um, so I try to be as fair as possible, right? Usually with those meetings happen, I always have like my, uh, a stick, you know, posted on my computer screen to remind me like, check your biases, talk about all the different systems, even if the student is not planning to go to a UC, like provide that information for them, right? So that we're talking about community college, the Cal States, the private schools, the UCs. Um, and it's a helpful reminder and, I, and it's a struggle because at times I do catch myself like looking at a transcript or meeting with the student and then you're just like, oh, like you say something and then you catch yourself and you're like, why didn't you say that? Like, are you, do you have this bias? that all of a sudden they're not gonna be successful because you have to remind yourself as an adult, as an educator, you're in a position where you have great influence where a student who might be more vulnerable might look at you and then the way that you respond to them or what you tell them might really impact their self-esteem, how they view themselves, what they think they can do, accomplish versus what they feel they cannot. Um, so we have to be careful with all that stuff. Um, so yeah, really just having the conversation and reminding yourself checking yourself. I always tell people, we need to be reflective practitioners, right? Because if we don't reflect on our own practice and what we're doing, um, then, you know, we could be doing a disservice. So one of the things I like is at the end of the school year, we survey, unfortunately, just our seniors, but I feel like we should be doing it to all of our students um, about our services as school counselors, what the interactions was, what they would have liked, if they had any negative experiences. And sometimes they'll name the counselor, sometimes they won't, but we'll always get a handful of those students who feel like, we didn't do enough or they'll be like, you know, my counselor didn't talk to me about these particular opportunities or services, but with my other friends, they told me that their counselor did X, Y, and Z. Um, so that again is a reminder, like if we're being reflective, like, okay, maybe not all of us are doing this, or maybe we need to be more careful because, you know, we did have like 50 students tell us that they didn't receive this information and 50 out of a class, a graduation class of like 200, it's, it's a large amount of students who are missing out on information and stuff like that. 
Does that answer your question? Sorry. <laughs> I feel like yeah, I yeah, I know. Because I was thinking about like why, like so you like the question was like why must we center diversity um, in your practice? And um, I like from what you told me, right? Like like your practice is all mostly interactional with the students. Uh -huh. um, and just knowing that and like like for yourself makes a huge impact on someone's life, especially when they're like at the end of their K through 12 and they're starting to look at post-secondary education and everything like that. And you mentioned self-esteem and a lot of, and I'm thinking, right, like social psychology, like a lot of our ideas about ourselves uh, is based on how adults interact with us. Do they treat us as equal mm -hmm. or do they, do they, yeah, like, do they sound like they believe in us, right? Um, yeah. So I think, I think, like, I just realized that right now, because I'm used to, like, looking things like policy, like, we don't have this policy, put it in, but, um, but with my conversation with you today made me realize even more um, how, like, even if we don't have policies for, like, all counselors have to be culturally responsive, it's just, like, fostering a culture where social interactions like you don't necessarily need policies for that but as a practice um, as your lived daily um, experience and how you interact with the students that that comes like that that sometimes just makes a difference right and I'm not saying we shouldn't have policies right but I'm yeah. seeing it's an all-around um, like approach for really um, recognizing that society is diverse and I guess like we have to like in order to actively combat ableism and even like anti-blackness right in our schools sometimes it just starts with our own framework and our own our own interactions with people yeah and then so, sorry I'm just gonna mention a couple yeah, yeah. you reminded me um you know <laughs> The American School Counselor Association just have a class where they argue that we should be social justice orientated, right? So when we're seeing practices of discipline happening, right? And oftentimes you'll have students, like one of the reasons why I'm doing the work that I'm doing is because of the experiences that my students in the past had experienced with teachers using colorism in the classroom to tell them who's pretty, who's not, oh, wow. saying things about who's gonna be successful uh, and who's not. And she's like, if you're a, you know, she was telling the Latino students that, they weren't gonna be as successful at her students. One went to UCLA and the other one went to Yale. Um, so like stuff like that. And even with like queer students, right? Where administrators are threatening to out them out to their parents and they wanna run for, you know, winner form of king because they're female presenting and stuff like that. So as a school counselor, we're working with the students who are coming into our office who are in distress. And then we have to work in collaboration with the administrators and the teacher like, how do we address this? How do I help the staff understand that what they're saying is rooted in racism and how it's offensive and impacting the social emotional well-being of our students? Um, to the point where uh, with that particular trans student who they wanted to out, um, I partnered up with one of the Gay Student Alliance teacher advisors and we partnered up with the Orange County LGBTQ Center and facilitated a safe zone training to inform our staff about the languages that we're using and how sometimes we don't know what, what we're doing is impacting our students. And it was very empowering because we worked uh, with our students who were part of that club that wanted to be co-facilitators. So they would 
run the workshop with us. They did the activities with the teachers. They self-disclosed some of their stories because they felt comfortable sharing it. They provided us examples that happened at the school site without naming the teacher so that they can see like, this isn't something that we're reading that happened in another school, but rather these are our students who are telling you about their experiences at our school. And that to me was super empowering. Um, so again, we have to utilize our position as a school counselor to not just understand the impacts that it has on their social emotional well-being and yes we have to work with the students to address some of these issues and process the information that they're experiencing but also working with the larger system in our school to provide a positive school culture and climate that is eventually hopefully uh, anti-racist and more supportive and welcoming to all of our students um, although that work is hard because you will have teachers and I've had teachers come by my office and like you guys are softening up these students and blah 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 and not everyone's gonna get it but the work has to continue. Oh god thank you for bringing that up like that's like what what we talked about the whole referral process just like the tip of the iceberg but Man, I wish I wish I could waste more of your time. Um, but yeah, like keeping like as a counselor, you you're not only accountable to your, well, you're ultimately accountable to your students. But part of that is also pushing um, and keeping your colleagues, your administration, teachers um, accountable to the well-being of the students. Yeah, and I think that really solidifies why we need to be critically conscious about the different forms of oppression that our students impact, not just because we might be imposing them and that might be affecting the referral process for special education or mislabeling them for a diagnosis that they don't qualify for, uh, but also like understanding that we need to address this school-wide as well. Wow, thank you, Enrique. Um, I, think, I think that's a great place to end right now. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to add? Um, I just want to thank you for your time and your wisdom. And, and I'm excited for our students to hear your wisdom that's backed by years of experience and also years of study, right? I don't want to downplay the study part. I think like as a practitioner, it's important. Like, you showed me as a practitioner that it's important to continue studying. Yeah, well, no, thank you for having me. I think I showed a lot. Um, if anyone has any follow-up questions, I'm sure you can connect them with me via email. Uh, but no, thank you for this opportunity. I always enjoy being able to discuss the role of a school counselor and what we do and making sure that we're being critically conscious about the power that we have and how our actions can impact uh, other students, particular marginalized students. But yeah. Thank you. And I'm gonna end it here right now. Stop the recording. Stop.